This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and in this case, life-changing. There is so much to David Suzuki, award-winning geneticist, brilliant science broadcaster, Radio 1975. He launched and hosted CBC Radio's Quirks and Quarks. Television 1979 host and still is the nature of things seen by millions around the world. The David Suzuki Foundation, 1990, he established it with his wife. Professor Emeritus, U of British Columbia, author, 50 books and counting, winner, UNESCO Prize for Science, recipient, the Order of Canada Companion, awarded 29 honorary university degrees, honored with eight names and formal adoption by two First Nations, received a People's Choice Documentary Award for a film about his life and legacy, and heard in a whole new way, the David Suzuki podcast. David Suzuki is an environmental warrior, a true force of nature, passionate about our planet, and at 85, more determined than ever to conserve and protect our natural environment. What a pleasure to welcome you to In Conversation, David Suzuki. Thank you. It's been many, many years since we met. So delighted to be here. And we're both still here, which makes me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, David, you have always been one step ahead of all of us on many fronts, including the environment. And I believe that you have been an activist, you know, really long before it respectfully became something cool. So from geneticist to activist, how did that happen? Well, uh, you know, when I came back from the United States, I'd been studying there for eight years, getting my training. I was all set to be a a hotshot scientist, but the very year I returned in 1962, a woman named Rachel Carson published a book called Silent Spring. Now, here I am, a hotshot scientist, right? I start reading this book, and I go, oh, my God. What she is saying is... Yes, science is very powerful. Paul Miller discovered that DDT kills insects, and he won a Nobel Prize in 1948 for that invention. But science couldn't, didn't realize, because we focus on a small part of nature, we didn't realize that DDT sprayed on a field will end up in rivers and lakes, and through a process, biologists only discovered after DDT was used, biomagnification. So when you get to the breasts of women, you've amplified the DDT concentration hundreds of thousands of times. We didn't know that. And I realized that, you know, powerful as science is, because we focus, we lose sight of the bigger picture within which uh, science operates. And, And... That was a profound kick in the head for me. Mm. Now, I had always been concerned uh, in the area of genetics, which was my great love and passion. As I began to teach, I discovered through the questions kids asked in class, I discovered, oh my God, geneticists very early on began to extrapolate from studies in fruit flies and carrot plants and uh, fungus 
to human behavior and saying things like uh, intelligence was was inherited. Scientists began to say that you know people on welfare were had uh, were it was a genetic uh, uh, basis. They began to claim all kinds of things because of their excitement with discoveries made in in genetics, and that really concerned me when I realized I, a third-generation Canadian, when World War II started, was immediately deprived of all rights of citizenship. And, you know, my parents were born and raised in Canada. We lost everything during the war. We were incarcerated for three years in a camp in the mountains and then kicked out of British Columbia. Um, and so, you know, civil rights have always been a big passion of mine. And when the environmental stuff arose, it just uh, became another passion uh, that concerned me. It ignited something in you. And you know what, David? You could have been bitter because of all that you had been through up to that point. But instead, you decided to turn that into something positive and you became an activist on so many levels. May I fast forward? Sorry, Sorry, go ahead. You know, bitterness is is really it, it can it's a very powerful motivator, but it is itself soul destroying on the person who is bitter. I re, when I got my job offer from the University of British Columbia, I, I was uh, teaching at the University of Alberta, and in 1963 I got a job offer in uh, UBC. I called my dad in a great state of excitement. Dad, Dad, I got a job back in Vancouver. You know, which is where he was born and raised. And the first thing he said was, why are you doing that? They kicked us out of there in 1945. Wow. So that bitterness was still there. And I I saw how hard it was on my dad, you know, like, you got to move on from that. Be, uh, you know, you've got to be motivated by um, anger and uh, and a drive to to change things. But being bitter... And being angry all the time is is very hard on you. Uh, I, I I don't think that's the way to go. How, who do you do all of this for? You know, I look at the David Suzuki <laughs> Foundation, and it had it, its roots. You and your wife Tara established this. Your several of your children are involved or have been involved in the David Suzuki Foundation. You have ten grandchildren. Who do you do all of this for? You said it right there. I mean, you know, when I started uh, becoming an outspoken activist on environmental issues, it was a very tough time back in the 60s when there were battles beginning over the forests of British Columbia. We had a bullet shot through our our, uh, front window in downtown Vancouver, if you can believe it. I mean, it was very, you know, the forest industry was claiming 50 cents of every tax dollar came from logging. And so this was, a, you know, uh, people like me were enemies of British Columbia. It was a very tough time. Uh, but our great fear was that someone would nab our children. I mean, our children were a prime motivator for what we were doing. But, you know, we were always afraid they would get, well, attacked, um, you know, either held uh, to threaten us. Uh, our children uh, were potential victims, and uh, that really worried us a, a, a lot. Um, but the battles really are about a future for our children. And I remember vividly, we had a two-hour special on forestry. 
and we arranged with Macmillan Blodell to allow us to film three loggers on Vancouver Island. And so they knew we were coming. We pulled up in a van, and as we got our gear out, they came out of the forest, these three great big guys, and they're saying, you GD and Viros, you're taking our jobs away. Oh. You're making our lives miserable. You know, we're proud of what we do. Who do you think you are? Great television, right? We start rolling, and uh, so we got into this thing about why Enviros are against logging. Finally, at the end, I said, look, I worked in construction for eight years. I love working with wood. I still do it as a hobby. No environmentalist is against logging. We just want to be sure your children and grandchildren will be able to log forests as rich as the ones you're cutting now. Right away, one of the loggers said, no effing way my kids are going to become loggers. There won't be any trees left. Jeez. And wow, right away I realized, you know, we're not even talking to each other. I mean... (laughs) Environmentalists are talking about long-term sustainability of the forests, and that's what we want to maintain. They're concerned about getting food on the table and uh, uh, every day and paying their car payments or their mortgages. We weren't talking to each other, and that I think is uh, uh, the big uh, the, the big problem. But it's why I think Greta Thunberg, you know, the Swedish youngster has been so powerful because she has just cut through everything and said, look, I, I was taught in school to take science seriously. And the scientists are saying, I don't have a future. You're destroying my future. So I'm striking. I'm leaving school once a, a, a week to strike for my future. And believe me, she's had more of an impact than all of us Enviros mm. put together. And, you know, we think about our very own Sophia Mather from Sudbury. She's 14 years old, and she is following in Greta's footsteps, in Al Gore's footsteps, in your footsteps. Are you confident, David, that the planet will be in good hands when we look at Greta, when we look at Sophia, when we look at your daughters and your son? I I, I have a quote from Severn Cullis Suzuki. Here it is. We have forgotten our most ancient and tested survival strategy to act with the future in mind. Well, she's absolutely right. And I don't think there's any question if we could turn turn things over to to youngsters, uh, it would be a very different world. The terrible part of it is that we've got a time crunch now. And we have very little time. When we started the David Suzuki Foundation in 1990, right away, people started to say, we've got to get into the schools. We've got to educate these kids. And my response was, look, we have 10 years. The World Watch Institute had said the 1990s must be the turnaround decade. If we don't turn off into a very different path in, uh, by the end of this uh, decade, it's, it'll be too late. So I said, we've got 10 years. We don't have time for the kids. Big mistake. Big mistake. Because, uh, you know, the, I find that when people go to university, they get out, they find a job, they get, they get married, they buy a house, they have kids. And then when environmentalists come along and say, you've got to change, you can't go on this way, they get mad. And I don't blame them. You know, they've invested a lot to get where they are. And then to be told the way they're living is unsustainable, it's just they, they, they have the wrong response. But 
They have children. <laughs> and when a child says, Daddy, Mommy, you know, I'm worried about my future, they have no choice but to respond, it seems to me. So it's fantastic that there are uh, Greta's and Sophia's uh, all over the world that are popping up everywhere now. I keep, I keep trying to persuade my Japanese friends to find a Japanese Greta. <laughs> There's got to be them there and because they're speaking the truth and uh, you can't deny the, the reality of what, what we're saying. But we have this terrible time crunch. And, you know, the, um, I look at the history of Canada, and uh, it's, people don't like uh, hearing this. We're great at talking. We great, we're great at saying things. In 1988, a major conference was held in Toronto on the atmosphere. The scientists, including Jim Hansen, were there saying, look, the evidence is in. We're warming the planet by, by uh, our emissions and we've got to change. Brian Mulroney opened the conference. Stephen Lewis chaired three-day uh, sessions. Uh, Gro Harlem Brundtland, the Prime Minister of Norway, was there. 400 people attended. 46 countries were represented. Everybody was there. At the end of the conference, the conference issued a press release saying, climate change, what well, we called it global warming back then, represents a threat to human survival second only to a global nuclear war. And they called for a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. If we had taken that seriously and done it, we wouldn't have the problem we have. But we didn't do a damn thing. In 1992, the Earth Summit at Rio called for stabilization of 1990 levels by the year 2000. We signed that agreement. We did nothing. 1997 at Kyoto, the uh, rich country said, we've got to reduce emissions by 5 to 6% below 1990 levels by the year uh, 2010. Uh, we signed the Kyoto. We ratified the Kyoto Conference uh, Protocol. We did nothing. All the while, Canada's emissions kept rising. And then, under Stephen Harper, Canada was the only country to back out of the Kyoto Agreement because he knew damn well we had, we had no chance of meeting the target. So come to 2015, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is elected. He announced Canada's back, signed the Paris Agreement, said we've got to limit emissions to keep it from rising uh, above 1.5 to 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels, preferably closer to 1.5. We all cheered. Two years later, he bought a pipeline. Hmm. On the absurd, uh, absurd notion, we've got to increase production of fossil fuels in order to get the taxes to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. So where are we now? Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said in 20, uh, uh, 2018, 2019, we've got to reduce by 45% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. That is a very, very uh, thin uh, bridge of time. What are you prepared to do to make this planet a better place for all? all of the younger generation, and for me and for you, most importantly, your 10 grandchildren. Everybody 
is looking for the magic bullet. There is no magic bullet. You know, the sum total of human, uh, the human impact on the environment is seven and a half billion people all doing various things, but within a framework in which it, we use nature as either a source of raw materials and we don't give a damn what happens when we extract it through our mining or logging or damming, uh, you know, whatever we do, we never think of the impact of what we're doing on the natural world. It's, and we use nature to dump our, our toxic materials and waste back into air, water, and soil. I'm just one person. I'm not going to save the world. And, um, and it would be an unbelievable conceit to think that I, I could. All I want is to be able to say, look, to my grandchildren, I hope that I'm still, my faculties are still there and I'm not dying of pain, but I hope I can look at them and say, I'm just one person, but believe me, I did everything I could for, for you. David Suzuki, you are a treasure and a pleasure. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for joining us in conversation. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Coming up next, a new generation of eco-warriors. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. From 85-year-old Enviro icon David Suzuki to fledgling eco-warrior 14-year-old Sophia Mather, she has lobbied for change in the nation's capital, marched with Greta Thunberg, and learned from Al Gore. Sophia Mather is part of a new, young, and fearless generation of environmental activists emerging in our country, seen and heard not to be ignored. I am thrilled to welcome Sophia to In Conversation. Glad to have you with us, Sophia. Hello, I'm glad to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. So who inspired you or what inspired you to become a climate activist? So I was inspired to take climate action um, by an iconic uh, climate activist, Greta Thunberg. You know, I had always taken action um, here in my family, little things within our house. Uh, but I think Greta Thunberg, uh, when, when she started Friday to be here, that really inspired me because it was really bringing the aspect of youth in climate action and that it's going to affect us more than it's going to affect adults. And I think that's really important. And I think she really inspired me to take action. You marched with her. How did that come about? Yeah, so I, um, I went marching with her in New York um, in September of 2019. And um, that mostly came about because Friday Street Future was getting really popular. And Greta was going to receive her Amnesty International Award in Washington, D.C. So after going to Washington, D.C. to meet up with her there, uh, we went to, to, to New York uh, to attend a big rally with hundreds of thousands of other people. And we ended up striking with each other. And then afterwards, she gave a big speech. And I think that empowered a lot of people because when you look at the, the big bird's eye clips of all of all the people that were there, there was a lot, a lot of people, mm. and everyone cared about the climate crisis. And I think that uh, that inspired many people to do lots of things. And Fridays for Future, that was inspired by Greta Thunberg, and that is something that you are a part of. What exactly is Fridays for Future? Yeah, so every Friday we go out striking 
um, which rather can be um, in person or online if, uh, because of COVID. Uh, but the point of Fridays for Future is that we don't want to go to school uh, because right now um, there's no point in really educating and going to school and practicing for a future if there is no future. Um, and then also, what is the point of attending science class and going uh, and learning science when governments won't listen to the science themselves? Are you supported on this by your parents? You know, in, in essence, you're not going to school on Fridays, and I'm sure that there are question marks surrounding the school and the teachers and the school board, but it's really your parents who are your guiding light. How do they feel about your commitment to Fridays for Future? Yeah, so they're very supportive. And I think also uh, with the school board, um, you know, they're they're also very supportive of my activism. And, you know, I still maintain the same marks and I still ever understand everything that's going on in school. Uh, but at the same time, um, I'm doing this activism, which on itself is very educating and it's teaching me a lot about politicians. And, you know, not many kids my age get to do the things that I, I get to do. And not many kids your age would be as committed as you are to the planet and to saving it and to making our future better. Let's talk about Al Gore. There is a, a very famous uh, man from the United States, a politician, but now a climate activist of the probably of, of a magnitude that none of us has ever seen before. What did you learn from Al Gore? Yeah, so I went to one of his training sessions um, during the summertime of 2020, and um, I learned a lot. But one of the most one of the messages I carried away is that climate change is going to affect us all, no matter who you are, how rich you are, where you live. It's going to affect you. Um, I think a lot of people have this idea in their head that climate change is mostly affecting the animals and it's affecting people in impoverished countries. But that's not true. It's going to affect us all, and it's affecting us all right now. And that's just going to get worse. And Canada's David Suzuki, I believe there's about 70 years between you. So very different generations, but the same goal. What are your thoughts about David Suzuki? So I think David Suzuki is a very inspiring activist uh, here in Canada. You know, he's been around for a long time. He's been taking action for a long time. And I think that really inspires me because, you know, he really cares about this, this next gener the next generations that are going to have to deal with this. And I think we need to see more adults like that. We need to see more adults that are that are caring about the future that they might not even be around for, uh, but caring that you know, uh, caring for it and making sure that you know we get to live the same life that that adults did back when they were our age. You know, you're not just paying lip service to this climate crisis and to being a climate activist. You are involved in a major lawsuit involving the Ontario government. Can you explain that? Yeah, so I'm a part of a lawsuit where we're suing the Ontario government for not taking enough action on the climate crisis. And I think that this is very important because it's coming out after um, politicians at a, a law angle and making sure that they're taking action under law. So if they don't take action, and if they don't follow up on their promises, under law that is illegal, and they can't do that if we win the case. And I think that's really important because if we do win, then other people can refer to this case and make it law where they live too and make sure that their politicians there are also taking action and not just saying things and making sure that they're following up with what they're, what they're saying.
Sounds to me like you have the makings of a lawyer, Sophia. <laughs> yes, yes. I do want to be a lawyer when I grow up, and I think I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot about um, the law and about what what the impact it has on politicians and, uh, and on people and the way that we can make serious change um, through law. So here's a hard question. Our future, yours and mine and the generations coming up under you and those who are ahead of me, do we have a future if we do nothing, Sophia? If we do nothing, I think that scientists are saying, and I'm very sure that scientists are saying, that we are not going to have a livable future. Uh, You know, um, I I try not to imagine what that future would be like because I know it's going to be scary. And I know that if we don't take action... Uh, that we're not going to have a great future and that it's, it's, it's not going to be fun. It's going to have an impact on a lot of people and we're going to be, you know, really mad that we didn't take action. Uh, but, you know, I always try to look on the positive side and try to see a world where we do take action and where we do take action in the climate crisis and that, you know, where we've changed our lifestyles to, to start caring about the environment and protecting our future and making sure that future generations can live the same way that we do. If you were face-to-face with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau right now, what would you say to him? That we need to take action. You know, we need to stop making empty promises. We need to stop saying we're going to take action and not take not take action because this is a serious problem. It's not a way to advertise your, uh, you know, to get more votes. It's a way that we need to, you know, protect our future and make sure that future generations um, can live the same way that we do. And I think... A lot of politicians don't see it that way. If other young people listening to you right now, and there are plenty of them right this second, they want to make a difference. What's your advice to them? Well, to take action. If you're really concerned about the climate crisis, I really think that you should uh, find a way to get active. It doesn't have to be through Friday to Future, but you can talk to politicians. You can talk to people about it and educate yourself about the climate crisis in ways that you can can make a difference. Sophia Mather, very young climate activist, I want to thank you for your precious time and your powerful voice. Thank you so much. Give me love, give me love, give me peace on earth, give me light. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.